Well, good evening again. And uh, I thought uh, since Mike and Andy and Xander said this would be a good idea, I thought I would uh, read this to you. So you, you folks at Calvary Chapel, you, um, and you can look down in the fellowship hall, there are pictures there, you support missionaries in Hungary, and their names are Chaba and Agnes, and uh, they have some real gifts that the Lord's given them. In fact, uh, they're from Hungary, but they had set up in the um, real rough places of right in the heart of L.A., uh, soccer ministry that the Lord totally blessed. And now the Lord's sort of taken them back to uh, Hungary. They're, they're still in L.A. because of COVID and some things right now. But they translate the Bible and other gospel materials into Hungarian, I guess it is. Is that right? Okay. And so you folks support them. And uh, their adult daughter uh, just passed away and went to be with the Lord, who had a baby or at least a young one and a husband. And so I thought I'd just read to you what they sent us just a few days ago uh, about 2021 and your support. Uh, they addressed it to us, but words just surely can't express our gratitude to Calvary Chapel, South Pittsburgh. We feel the presence of the Holy Spirit as we are carried by the power of your fervent prayers and petitions. We are forever grateful for you walking with us as serving the lost and hopeless souls of Hungary and for bringing your entire church along also for this journey. Thank you for your continuous generosity, and unceasing prayers. Love, Chaba and Agnes. P.S. We'll send our mission trip report very soon. I'm going to have that put up somewhere down on the bulletin board, and you can look at that. And just a reminder to keep praying for them, because like lots of us, as you can imagine, they're grieving now, and, um, you know, kind of in the throes of that as well. So, uh, if you want to put them on your prayer list, that would certainly be appreciated. And so now we're going to finish out Lamentations, hopefully. I think, you know, it's sort of cold, so we probably have to about 10, so I think I can get through it. I'm kidding. But um, we're going to finish out Lamentations here, and what a perfect um, thing to talk about as Chab and Agnes have gone through some really rough stuff lately, and I know some of you and some of us have gone through some rough stuff. And so, you know by your reading of the Old Testament, right? You know this, that the Lord didn't like the grumbling and complaining of the Israelites. I mean, it's one of the reasons they didn't get it to enter into the promised land, is that they were grumblers and complaining. And yet, in the Psalms, the precatory Psalms, and other psalms, uh, and also in Job, and also here in Lamentations, you see these beautiful laments that it seems like, appears like, that God isn't put off by. So what's the difference? And I think that's one of the things that the Lord is teaching us through Lamentations. Here's why. Because when you get to the end of the book of Lamentations, you and me and us 
as good old American citizens are going to be sort of scratching our head. You know why? Because there's not really a resolution. And we like resolutions, don't we? But in true Hebrew poetry form or format, we now get to chapter 3. Remember, there are five chapters of Lamentations. I think that's important to know, that there are five chapters of Lamentations. And the first chapter is an acrostic of all the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. The second chapter, did that just go out? Oh, boy. Is the is an acrostic, all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. The third chapter is fascinating. It's 66 verses, and it's an acrostic, but tripled. First letter, second letter, three times, and it gets to 66. Fourth chapter is 22 verses, an acrostic. Fifth chapter is 22 verses of the first letter, second letter of the alphabet, but they're all mixed up. It's not in order. And I think there's a sermon there. Because no matter whether your life's in order or chaotic, God is always faithful. And good and merciful and just and majestic and kind and compassionate. And you say, well, how can you say that? Some rough things have happened in my life. But the Lord has, in his infinite wisdom, sent his son Jesus Christ to solve all of those problems. Every one of our problems are solved at the cross. So here, let's just dive in. We come now to the third chapter of Lamentations. Remember, in the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew folks sometimes call this book How. They say it in Hebrew, and I don't know Hebrew, so I don't know how they say it. But they say How. Why? Because the questions are being asked. How, Lord? Why, Lord? Who, come on, what's going on, Lord? And you can see it right there in the first chapter, first two lines. How, how, etc. And they're these individual poems, but what's fascinating now in chapter 3 in the middle of chapter 3, can you believe it? Because that's the way Hebrew poetry is. Oftentimes it builds to the middle, and the, the hopeful message is in the middle of the poem, and then it comes back down again, sort of just like life, except for the Lord is always good. And here, you're going to know many of these verses. But I want you to remember something. You, you know, like on Facebook or something, Sometimes, like at Christmas time, there are these Facebook pages that's all about winter or, um, or Christmas, and it shows this little scene, and it's like this meandering brook water at night, and there's this farmhouse, and it's just beautiful. And, you know, and it's, you know, got the music playing and all that sort of thing, and it's just, you know, the twinkly lights are all out, and the pine trees with the fresh fallen snow on the pine. I mean, it's just gorgeous. And in the corner, it says stuff like this. 
through the Lord's, or through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. And you got it in this cute little beautiful little picture, and it's just, you know, just amazing. Well, that's not where this verse falls in the Bible. This verse comes, and these verses come, in the middle of total and utter destruction and devastation. These verses come in the middle of of God's judgment, unthinkable judgment. God chose the people and nation of Israel to be a conveyor of God's love, to to have God's love and just to bring it about and show the world how God could love his people. And they disobeyed, and the Lord, I mean, unthinkable, brought an enemy a world power enemy to come and just utterly destroy Jerusalem and Judah and bring the people into Babylon for 70 years of exile. I I mean, come on. And the Lord was telling in Jeremiah the people, I want you to lean into, lean into the chastisement. I don't want you to buck it. I don't want you to kick against it. I don't want you to resist it. I want you, the Lord said, through Jeremiah, I want you to go up into Babylon and live your lives, live in your homes, have occupations, and I want you to lean into the judgment. And remember, many people who stayed in Israel, it said those who were not the popular and the rich, you know, the little poor little remnant that stayed back said, we ain't doing that. And in fact, many of the false prophets were saying, don't listen to Jeremiah or God through Jeremiah, that's wrong. No way you should succumb to any sort of judgment or chastisement. That's not true. God wouldn't want to do that. It sounds just like the church and like the emergent church and the false prosperity gospel type stuff. And then even that little remnant said, well, we're not going to go in there. You know what we'll do? How about we head back into Egypt, which is a picture of bondage and sin and destruction, and all that sort of thing, and so they did, and my goodness, Jeremiah felt so bad for them, and had a heart for his people, he even went with them, and so it's a powerful story, and in the middle of that destruction and devastation, here this chapter comes, the crescendo, the climax of lamentations, here it is, Jeremiah writes this, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has led me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely he has turned his hand against me time and time again throughout the day. Now the first thing I want you to notice is this, the first word, I. See, because the first two chapters or the first two poems were written sort of from a national perspective, a national perspective, because the southern kingdom of Judah had fallen into sin. Now here I'll take just a little bit of a rabbit trail and I want to remind you of something. Job was a personal lament. He was having circumstances taken from him and some rough things that happened to him. 
and it was a personal lament. And yet, we know from reading Job, there was nothing that he did that caused the suffering. He just was suffering. And, of course, we have chapter 1 as well. But you understand what I'm saying. It's a personal lament without any, like, hidden sin that Job was harboring. Remember that. Lamentations is different in that it's, a, it's not a, a personal um, lament. It's mostly, except for this chapter, a lament uh, on behalf of the whole southern kingdom. You get it? But the other difference is there was actually reason for the Lord to bring judgment on Judah. And there are several reasons Number one, remember from reading Jeremiah, they didn't trust the Lord. They didn't listen to the Lord. When the Lord said, I want you to plant six years and take a year off, they never did it. And the Lord said, after all those times of doing it, 70 times through, you owe uh, me, or you know, 490 years, 70 times through, you owe me 70 years in exile. There was also uh, many other things that they got into, especially idol worship, Right? And they said, Judah, like the northern kingdom before, when they were torn out in 722 B.C., they got into idol worship. And here's the danger, folks, and it happens today. God said, I want you to worship me exclusively. Well, the Israelites in the north, and then it spread to the southern kingdom, said, oh, we will worship the Lord. But then they had the other enemies or the other people that surrounded them who worshiped other gods, and what they started to do was worship God himself, but there were other idols that they worshiped. And God says, no, that's not it. You don't miss it. If you don't uh, uh, worship me exclusive, you, exclusively, then that's not worshiping me. I'm the one that's due all honor, glory, and power. And in fact, you see all of the de- devastating things that they got into because of it. Well, here, going back off of my rabbit trail, or coming back down my rabbit trail, the first word is I. And so most people, most commentators believe now in chapter 3, it's the only chapter in which this is Jeremiah talking about what the national sin of Judah has done to him personally. And isn't that true? How Well, first of all, the Bible says we're responsible for our own sin, but we set up, God set up uh, governments and nations to follow hard after him. And when the nation and the society and the family then goes, it produces, we start to produce people who aren't healthy spiritually, correct? And so that's this, and and and. Jeremiah has that pain in his heart, and here he comes with, I'm the man who has been afflicted by this rod, or by the rod of his wrath. He makes it personal, the suffering, or it is made personal. He's led me and made me walk in darkness, not in light. Surely he has turned his hand against me. Time and time again throughout the day, he has aged my flesh and my skin, and broken my bones, he's besieged me and surrounded we, me with bitterness and woe. 
He has set me in dark places like the dead of long ago. Now, you need to remember, in Jeremiah 31, we learn that at the end of Jeremiah's book and time of ministering, do you remember this? He was thrown in a cistern. So that's in Jeremiah 31. And so this sort of matches up with this being Jeremiah because there's a debate. Is this Jeremiah speaking or is this just Jeremiah speaking? Or is this Jeremiah speaking about his life or is this Jeremiah speaking about Judah? And to, uh, again, most people think it's Jeremiah. And here you would see that. He's in Jeremiah 31. He's in his cistern. Doesn't that sound like he's describing his time in the cistern. Well, he's hedged me, or he has set me in dark places like the dead of long ago. Ever felt like that? You felt like you're just broken and you've been besieged and that you're just aging. That's what's happened this basketball season for me. My hair's turned gray. <clears throat> and he has hedged me in so that I can't get out, and he's made my chain heavy. Even when I cry and shout, he shuts out my prayer. Ever feel like you're not getting through? Your prayers aren't being answered? I mean, come on. Well, here, the lamenter, Jeremiah, is being real. He's blocked my ways, verse 9, with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. He's been to me a bear lying in wait, like a lion in ambush. Can this, this is really strong language, folks. He's turned aside my ways, torn me to pieces, made me desolate, has bent his bow, and set me up as a target for the arrow. You ever felt like that with God? Well, this lamenter, Jeremiah, is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing out, telling us very difficult words. And, you know, almost as you read it, it's sort of cringy. He has caused the arrow of his quiver to pierce my loins. I have become the ridicule of all my people. I mean, come on. Who here likes to be ridiculed by everybody? Right? Remember when you were a kid at recess and did something and everybody ridiculed you, how awful you felt or whatever. We don't like this. And, and Jeremiah doesn't like it either. He's saying, I've become the ridicule of my people. He, he, he recognized as he was prophesying and nobody was listening to him that that was difficult for him in his humanity. Well, their taunting song uh, all the day, he has filled me with bitterness. He's made me drink wormwood. I mean, he, he, he let bitterness come in. I mean, come on, folks. Have you ever been in this place where you felt bitter about something? Well, he's also broken my teeth with gravel. Wow. And covered me with ashes. You have moved my soul far from peace. Catch that. It went from he has done that to you have done that. You see how personal it is? In other words, he has no peace. You have moved my soul far from peace. He felt not peaceful. Isn't the opposite? I don't know. Isn't anxiety sort of in the other category? I've forgotten prosperity, and I said my strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. Look, my strength and my hope. But now, here it comes. Here's the difference between a lament 
and a complaint and a murmuring. Here's the shift. Here it comes. As he's writing, you can just feel it going into the next gear on the steering column or whatever of his writing, of his thinking, of his hope. And here's what he does. And I would challenge you to remember this word, remember. (laughs) Remember, when you're feeling lost, perplexed, sad, depressed, no strength, broken, at the end of your rope, which all of us get to, when you feel like people are ridiculing you or whatever it is, what do we do? We remember. We remember first. We, we remember who God is, of course, his attributes. But here's another way in which we remember. We remember to turn and pivot towards the Lord. And that's the difference between a complaint and a lament. A complaint just is out there, out there, out there. In other words, you're saying, Lord, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're doing. And it's not bridging the gap, as the pastor I referred to last week, between pain and the promises. It doesn't ever bridge the gap, complaining. It just stays on the path of heading towards the pain because you're never pivoting and remembering the one who could do anything about the pain. You get it? So here he says, remember, my affliction and roaming, the wormwood and the gall, my soul still remembers and sinks within me. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. There it is. It's like the little green little things that butt up there in the middle of winter or I always say, I always look out, my office looks out over Mount Washington and you know, right in March, not April, but March, at the end of March, you know, just one day you might just be staring out there and you just start to notice that all the trees that are so barren start to just seem red and you can see all across the river there that all of the trees seem like they have these red little buds on there, even though the tree is bare. And that's what this is like. It's sort of language of hope and faith, and it's sort of still lamenting. But he's turning and pivoting towards the Lord, and that's, again, the difference. So he says, my, whole, my soul still remembers and sinks within me. This I recall to my mind. You get it? This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. What is it that he recalls to my mind? Here it comes. In the middle of utter devastation, not the pretty cute little picture on Facebook that plays the wintry scene, or the little cottage in the woods, or the little puppy dog, or whatever it is. It's not through that. It's not in the high times, in the great times, that these things are uh, uh, set forth in the Bible. This is set forth in the middle of utter devastation and brokenness. And he says this, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. Now, I, I, I just got to tell you, the word mercy that he keeps using here as we pause and go on, I'm never going to make it, but we're going to try and make it. 
Mercies is that beautiful word, hased. Oh, hased. If you don't know the word hased, and we've talked about it here lots, know the word hased. It means covenant love, sort of. But no one really knows all that it means. We don't have a word of it in the English. It means mercy, withholding from you what you do deserve. But it's not just that. It's in, in Psalm 63, when he says, your, which is my favorite psalm, when he says this one, your loving kindness is better than life. He's using the word hased. It's that all-encompassing, committed love to you that'll never be broken. It's that all-encompassing, committed love to you that'll never be broken, covenant love that is kind to you, loving to you, always, long-suffering towards you when you act bad or you're not acting good. It's that love. It's, it's a love that is committed and will always be there. And it says here, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. What is the one thing when everything has gone haywire and awful? And it does. Our circumstances do, folks. There's sometimes we're in circumstances that are in the low places of life, and sometimes our circumstances are way up here. But what is the one thing that you could always praise the Lord for for you? And that's this, that you're not consumed. He's a consuming fire. And because of that, and because of our sin, the real thing that we deserve is fire and judgment. And the Lord has kept us through that by his hased through his son, Jesus Christ. If you ever doubt that the Lord is committed to you, just take your thoughts and remember the cross. It's where you find life and hope. He says this, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. Has said, because his compassions fail not. You see, the hesed of God, the mercy of God, is not just something that's inactive. It's an active love. He actively loves you. He thinks all the thoughts towards you that are like the sand of the sea. He, don't you like to be thought about? I know you do because there's a thing called that Hallmark made up called Valentine's Day. And you love it when you get a card or flowers or whatever you get. People are thinking of you. Yes, of course. Or if somebody drops you a note out of the blue in the mail, oh, it's so awesome. Or a text from somebody that they've never, you know, in a long, man, but the Lord is constantly thinking on you. You matter to God. His compassions towards you fail not. They are new every morning. Now watch this shift. As every ounce of strength has been coming out of him, his bones are broken. He's at, you know, he just can't go on, he seems. Remember is the word, and he pivots towards God, doesn't he? It's the bridge between the pain and the promises. People have said, point your lament towards what you know to be true, despite the circumstance. Point the lament to what you know to be true. 
and that'll give an outlet to your pain. Watch this. It gives an outlet to your pain, but it also takes your heart and just anchors it deep in the Lord. You get that? And here, the Lord's mercies are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is, and here's another shift, watch, your faithfulness. It's personal now. It's not just great is the Lord or great is God's faithfulness. It's personal to this man who's going through it. Great is your faithfulness. And then this is one of the great ideas of the whole Bible. If you will take this and meditate on this and get with the Lord alone with this and ask him to show you about this, you're going to be never more free than when you know this. And that's this. The Lord is my portion, my soul, and watch. And because of that, or therefore, I hope in him. And now watch, you've pivoted from the complaint towards God or complaint of circumstances. You've pivoted towards remembering the things of God and the one who will hear and his compassions and his attributes and all that sort of thing. And where you previously had no hope, it says, therefore, our hope. And here it is. It's because ultimately (laughs) it's the Lord is our portion, folks. You go, well, well, that's What's such a big deal about that? Well, see, I like Leviticus. I tell you that often, not to prop me up, I just love it. And there's this thing in Leviticus where God spells out and then he executes it later. You know, I'm going to give some land to everybody in the 12 tribes, but when it gets to the Levites, no land. You're reading through there in your two-year Bible, and you're checking off, and you're going, wow, this is fantastic. And you get to that, and you go, well, that's a head-scratcher. No land for the Levites? Why would they want no land? Or why would he not give land to the Levites? And it says, or you know, the idea here is that it's, it's throughout the Bible, is that because they work with the things of God. They actually do get some cities to live in, but... But there's no land, you know, no territory. And the reason is, is because it's the Lord that is their portion or their inheritance or their reward. And the funny part is, you're part of a chosen nation or generation, a royal priesthood. And when you get to the place, listen to this. This this is it. This is it right here. When you get to the place where the Lord is your portion. You don't care about the stuff or the land or the gifts. I mean, they're nice. What you want is the giver of the gifts and all that he has. I mean, you want that sweet fellowship in the morning and during the day and in the evening time. And you, 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 you want to spend your time in worship on the back porch or wherever you do that. And in your prayer closet, yes, because we're human, it sort of gets monotonous. But you feel those sweet times of fellowship when it's just you and him. And you just can say to him, Lord, we sang it, didn't we? You're all I want. 
See, you'll never be more free than that. Because whether your circumstances say you get a $2 million house or a $2,000 house or a cruddy apartment or a beautiful apartment or a cruddy car, you see, see, the circumstances are going to take you through life and they're always going to be up and down. But when the Lord is your portion, you live above the circumstances. Now, that doesn't mean you don't grieve and you're not sad sometimes. Of course. Of course we are. But we have hope, and the hope was restored. Therefore, I hope in him. Somebody text Xander and say, move back the 12 minor prophets, okay? Because we're going to go one more week. Well, the Lord is my portion. And you can see that all throughout the Old Testament. Look in Psalm 119, verse 5. Or excuse me, verses 57 in Psalm 16, 5. You'll see it there as well. The Lord is my portion. Isn't that beautiful? Well, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. So here's another thing that we do. We, how, do how do we get to that place where the Lord is our portion? And that's all we want. And we can really sing the song and not feel hypocritical. It's because you wait upon the Lord. And that doesn't mean sitting on the couch, watching days of our lives and saying, okay, Lord, do something for me. This is an active waiting that he's talking about, searching the scriptures, praising the Lord, not moving out until he gives us instructions. It's, a, it's, a, it's an active waiting. That's what this is. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Here's the red buds on Mount Washington of the Bible. I mean, this is in the middle of devastation. Here comes hope. And it's that the Lord still is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It's good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Watch this. It's good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. It's awesome for young people, and as you're growing up, to bear the yoke, to sometimes have these things, this chastisement, this discipline. I mean, come on, guys. We got a little guy that lives next door to us now, and he crawls around and tries to put his fingers in the light sockets constantly. It's just what he does. It's like he has a magnet in his mind towards the light sockets. But he's got it. Thankfully, his dad put the ones in that you can't get shocked, but I couldn't do that. So uh, what do you got to do? You got to make sure they know that they can't put their the fork in the light socket. You can't just let them put the fork in the light socket, folks. You got to Make sure they know that's dangerous and associate that, right? And see, the Lord does that stuff with us. He chastises us. He disciplines us because why? We're his kids. And it's good to learn discipline. That's what he's saying. So don't be shocked by the discipline. That's what comes with a good dad. But in the middle of it, he's saying you'll find hope. If you'll take your pain and you'll turn it towards the promises and his promises and him, and you'll find him there across the bridge waiting for you. And that's where all health spiritually comes. You get hope and you're able to bear things. It's good for a man to bear. You have salvation. You have hope and you're waiting quietly Look at this. Let him sit alone and keep silent because God has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth, verse 29, in the dust. There may yet be hope. 
Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes him. There's the verse that says, lean in to the discipline. Lean in to the chastisement of God. Of course, sort of sounds like Jesus there as he was submitting himself at the cross. So the Lord will not, verse 31, here's something that I want you to circle and always remember. In fact, maybe memorize this verse uh, as we're coming up, verse 33. For the Lord will not cast off, it's 31 where I'm starting, but memorize 33. For the Lord will not cast off forever, though he causes grief, watch, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies, for here, this is the verse to remember. For he does not afflict willingly, and you could look up after tonight, Genesis 18:25, that supports this, that, nor grieve the children of men. He doesn't do you understand? Even when he, you ever had to go, oh, spank your kid. And they're just so cute. And, you know, sometimes, you know, one time I remember one of my boys, I'm going to, man, I'm going to be mean to say this, but I would always sort of, it was my fault too, and that made me even sadder. I'd sort of headbutt him when he was a little baby. (laughs) And he would kind of welcome me home with a little headbutt. But one time his mom was sort of holding him, and he just sort of, bang, just nailed her with a headbutt. And it was my fault, and, but whatever. So I, I don't know if he got in trouble there. But you know, when you're kids, when they're just so cute, and, but they do something that's, and, and it, the heart that you have, when you know you have to discipline them to keep them safe and healthy and all, and you're not angry, you're just disciplining them, but you just love them so much. Do you know what I mean? The tension there. Well, see, the Lord, he's not doing this willingly, I mean, in the sense that he's enjoying the affliction, and yet he knows that judgment and chastisement for his kids can help produce godliness. Now, For he does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. That's so beautiful. To crush under one's feet all the prisoners of the earth. To turn aside the justice to a man. There before the face of the Most High. Or subvert a man in his cause. The Lord doesn't approve. Who is he who speaks and it comes to pass when the Lord has not commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that woe and well-being proceed? Why should a living man complain? A man for the punishment of his sins. In other words, it's verses 37 through 39 there is there's no use arguing with the Lord when his ways are just. Now, verses 40 through 47 is sort of a turning back to God here. It's God's call to his people for self-examination. Because when judgment is deserved... You know, when judgment is deserved, now remember, we're in a special circumstance here where judgment was deserved, there's really no reason to complain, and what the Lord is looking for is repentance. So now, let me just go another rabbit trail. 
Why do rough things happen to people? Why do rough things? Well, because here's why. It's not always because somebody's sinning. That's what I want you to know. If you've had something really awful and terrible happen in your life, and you have, and so have I, it's not always because we're sinning, like in this situation. Do you get it? Sometimes bad things happen that we consider bad, and they are bad, just because we live in a terrible, fallen world. You understand that, right? We live in a fallen world, and there's sin and destruction And there's sickness, and there's really tough things. So sometimes that's why bad things that we consider bad happen. But also, the Bible says that we reap what we sow. And so we all have this thing called free will, and we do things sometimes, and there's consequences to that. You get it? And there we must deal with the consequences. And that's sometimes very shattering and tough as well. But also... I guess there's another category, and there could be even more categories than this. Sometimes the Lord's just getting our attention through these things, right? So the reason I'm telling you that is it's not, it's not, if if something rough has happened to you, it's not always this situation. It could be another situation, but in this situation, they had sinned, and here there was must have been, or there needed to be, a turning back to God. And chapter verses forty through forty-seven is that. In fact, he says, uh, "You have covered yourself." I'm skipping down to verse forty-three with anger and pursued us. You've slain and not pity. You've covered yourself with a cloud. And remember, the cloud and the fire were important to the people. They, they were used to the cloud and the fire uh, uh, leading the people of God. And now it seems like he's covered himself with a cloud that prayer shouldn't even get through. You've made us an offscoring, uh, scouring, and refuse in the midst of the peoples. All our enemies have opened their mouths against us. Watch this. But my eyes, verse 48, overflow with rivers of water for the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes flow and don't cease. In other words, real repentance means sorrow for sin. And here we see it in the life of Jeremiah on behalf of a nation. You know, it's awful tempting when we do corporate prayer to say, Oh, Lord, let's pray against uh, the abortion industry. They, 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 they. Well, see, it's we. We live here. And the reason, one of the, one of the reasons why this terrible atrocity has been going on is because the righteous people, the, or the ones who serve the righteous God, did not stand up or have not stood up and said enough. And so we're saying they sometimes when we pray, well, not here, Jeremiah and others through the Bible always prayed or many times prayed as if they participated in it as well. And he feels that way. We have done this, Lord. So his eyes flow and don't cease, verse 49, without interruption, till the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. His eyes bring suffering to his soul because all the daughters of his city, his enemies without cause, hunted him down like a bird. The waters, uh, they silenced my life in the pit and threw stones at me. The waters flowed over my head. I said I'm cut off. And now 55 here, uh, he's confident repentance 
would lead to restoration. I called on your name, O Lord, from the lowest pit. You've heard my voice. You do not hide your ear from my sighing, from my cry for help. You draw near on the day I called on you and said, do not fear. Well, that's fascinating. I don't know if you know this, and I'm going blank on the psalm, but I think it's Psalm 39. It actually says that the Lord hears your crying. So look at this. You have heard my voice. You don't hide your ear from my sign, from my cry for help. In other words, he knows that the Lord hears him while he's crying. Isn't that beautiful? You draw near on the day I called on you and said, do not fear. Well, here, Lord, you've pleaded the case for my soul. You've redeemed my life. Oh, Lord, you've seen how I'm wrong. Judge my case. You've seen all their vengeance, all their schemes. You've heard their reproach, all their schemes against me, the lips of my enemies, and their whispering against me all the day. Look at their sitting down and their rising up. I'm their taunting song. Repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. Give them a veiled heart. Your curse be upon them in your anger. Pursue and destroy them from under the heavens of the Lord. And you go, well, wow, that's rough. But remember, what's he doing right here? He's leaving the vengeance with the Lord. See, that can be bitterness for us. It wasn't fair. How come you didn't work this out already, Lord? It's not fair. But the Bible tells us, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So you can leave all the fairness and the justice to the Lord. And he's doing that here. Get it? Look at this. Go over to 1 Peter 2, verses 21 through 24. Go over there, and we'll see how the Lord dealt with this issue. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24. Here it comes, if I can get to 21. <laughs> Well, I'm in 20. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable for God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, didn't revile in return." When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to who, him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live for the righteousness by, those, by whose stripes you were healed. Did you see how the Lord dealt with the people who wronged him? And you could go into the Sermon on the Mount for those who persecute you or call you um, vile things, what are we to do? The enemies, we're actually to pray for them. Jesus himself on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. That's the very life that the Lord gives to us. And here, he sort of shows us that. Well, go on with me and we'll be done. We'll be done at 820. Chapter 4. By the way, in 1 Peter 2, verse 11, 1 Peter 2, verse 11, 
Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which was against the soul. That's another way of saying exiled people, people who are out of the place of God, right? So we are, in a sense, exiles here on this earth until we get to be with the Lord. He is our portion. Now, this is an interesting chapter. This talks about how Jerusalem has sort of deteriorated and how the culture has deteriorated and how the Lord disciplines. And watch what the prayer or the poem, the guy who wrote the poem, watch what he does. He does this thing that was prevalent in Judah, and that's this. He brings up all the idols of their life. Watch this. How the, God, how the gold has become dim. First thing he does is bring up wealth. How changed the fine gold. The stones of sanctuary are scattered at the head of every street. The precious stones of Zion, uh, valuable as fine gold. How they're regard, regarded as clay pots. The works of the hands of the potter. And you can remember in Jeremiah 19 when he bought a clay jar and he threw it into, broke it into pieces. And he's talking about now wealth and beauty in the city. And the second thing is, is the powerful young people of the city. And then he said all the, uh, he goes on and he talks about what it was like in the city. And he says, the jackals present their breasts to nurse their young, but the daughter of my people is cruel. And you go, the Keep going in verse 4. The tongue of the infant clings to the roof of the mouth for thirst. The young children ask for bread. How about this one? Rich people, those who ate delicacies, are desolate in the street. Those who were brought up in scarlet embrace ash heaps. The punishment of the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the punishment of the sins of Sodom. Wow, are you kidding me? The chosen people he wrote that about? which was overthrown in a moment with no hand to help. And you could keep going on. Those Look down in verse 9. Those slain by the sword are better off than those who die of hunger, for these pine away. So think about it. Security and safety that comes through economics and through living in a society, that's sort of shown there's not real security there. The security of wealth show you know this chapter is praying that that you can't place your hope in wealth you can't place your hope in um, uh, you know the security of economics and you, and you keep going on look down in verse 13 because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in her midst the blood of the just you're like wow the spiritual leaders of the nation failed and so you can't be destroyed when The spiritual leaders fail, even though that is a real uh, tough and difficult thing. And you keep going. In verses 17 through 19, our, our eyes failed us, watching vainly for our help. And our watching, we watched for a nation that couldn't save us. Oh, my. Go home tonight. Go home, straight home, and turn on MSNBC. Watch it for 30 seconds and turn to Fox. And watch it for 30 seconds, and you're going to see a whole segment of people and society hoping that politics will save us. 
And that's what he's railing against here. Yes, the Lord establishes governments. Yes, we need to be righteous in our government. Yes, we need to be responsible citizens and inform citizenry and vote. I'm not saying any of that, but if you're trusting in a, a party to save you or to save us, it's not it. It's the Lord. <laughs> And you keep going. He goes down and he goes, Rejoice and be glad, verse 21, O daughter of Edom. Jacob and Esau. Do you remember they were brothers? The Edomites were from Esau, who sold his birthright, right? Do you remember this? And they, Jacob is where the 12 families came from, and they were enemies from that time forward. And here, the Lord shows you that he'll take care of the vengeance, Here's an enemy of God. The cup shall pass over you, and you shall become drunk and make yourself naked. He's speaking to Edom here. The Edomites would be forced to drink the cup of God's judgment. It's as if the Lord's saying, leave the justice and the vengeance and the bitterness to me. Yes, be an informed citizenry. Yes, we live in the great country of the United States. Praise the Lord for her. But the United States is not our Savior. Jesus is our Savior. Remember, O Lord, in verse or chapter 5, and remember this is all mixed up. What has come upon us? Look and behold our approach. Our inheritance has been turned over to aliens. He's just talking very truthfully. Our mother's down there. Or, we, or excuse me, verse five, uh, 3. We've become orphans and waifs. Our mothers are like widows. We pay for the water we drink. Oh boy. How about now? We pay for the water in bottles. But anyway. And our wood comes at a price. They pursue our heels. We labor and have no rest. We've given our land to the Egyptians and the Assyrians to be satisfied with bread. In other words, he's saying you trusted in these little political alliances you thought that would save you. Our fathers, our leaders sinned and are no more, but we bear their iniquities. Servants rule over us. Look, we get our bread at the risk of our lives, verse 9 says. Our skin is hot as an oven because of the fever of famine, and they ravished the women in Zion, the maidens in Judah. Princes were hung up by their hands, and elders were not respected. Young men ground at the millstones. Boys staggered under loads of wood. The elders have ceased gathering at the gate and the young men from their music. The joy of our heart has ceased. Our dancing, or our dance has turned into mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. And uh, it's kind of a play on words. It's really sort of saying there, if only we had never sinned. That's what that's saying right there. In other words, do you catch what he's sort of saying here at the end of the poem? Sin looks great for a time. I mean, it is. It's enticing and it looks exciting. And I know the world tells you to live with your boyfriend or to live with your girlfriend or to do this and to do that. But the Lord is asking you to wait until marriage and to honor that covenant 
But I know, but it looks exciting and, and, and that woe to us for we have sinned. If only we haven't sinned. And I'm not, I'm just using that as an example. Because of this, our heart is faint. Did you catch that? We're worn out because of sin. And because of these things, our eyes grow dim. Because of Mount Zion, which is desolate, with foxes walking about on it. And here comes the lament. Here it is. It doesn't have it here in the New King James that I use, but in the King James it has it. But, or yet, that's, look, it's the pivot. It's the pivot. But you, O Lord, remain forever. You, your throne from generation to generation. Why do you forget us forever and forsake us for so long a time? Turn us back to you, O Lord, and we will be restored. I underline that because it seems as if God's grace is so powerful. Watch this, and we'll sort of end on this, although not exactly. When you're bringing your complaint... You're in your pain, and you're giving voice to the pain. If you just shoot it out in a complaint of untrust and never pivot toward the Lord, it's just out there. That's sort of Old Testament complaining and murmuring. But when you lament, and you, you know it does feel good to give voice to the complaint, and you pivot it, and you walk across the bridge towards the Lord, look, he even gives the grace when you decide that you're going to do that to help you turn back to him. Did you catch that? So it's not like totally this self-help Susie Orman, I'm going to do it type of thing. It's the thing where you say, I will agree with the Lord that if I'll turn back to him and pivot, and the Lord says, if you do that, you're going to find grace. You're going to find the way back. You don't have to live all your life in bitterness, in unforgiveness. I mean, Johnny Erickson Tata, folks. Come on. This great young lady of rode horses and swam and was very active and dives into the Chesapeake Bay and for her whole life she can't move. I mean, if anybody would have a right, so to speak, her whole life to stay in complaint and unforgiveness, but you know what? You know what she's done? She's given voice to the pain and turn towards the Lord. And when she's done that, and when she said, I'll decide that I'm going to turn to the Lord, the Lord said, I'm going to give you more grace to help you turn and come back. Turn us back to you, O Lord, and we will be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are very angry with us. See, it is good to identify the pain in your life. Many of you, many of us, we've gone through really painful things. It's okay. It's good to identify that pain. But God is sovereign. And in the middle of that word is the word reign. 
In other words, get to the place in lament where you don't let the pain reign. Yes, there is pain. You go through pain. No one's saying for you to shrug it off and just suck it up. But as you give voice to the pain and you turn towards the Lord, what are you turning to? You're turning to God's sovereignty. You're saying, you reign, Lord, in my life. Jesus said it perfectly as we close this out. How could you improve upon this? Hmm. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's true. He is the God of all comfort. If you've mourned or are mourning, I think what we're learning here over the last couple weeks is that it's okay to be real and raw and authentic with the Lord, but to not leave it there, to turn towards him and let him comfort you. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do. We come here tonight and we thank you. We thank you for your word and we thank you for this beautiful book, one to be studied and thought about, meditated on, But, Lord, your word points us towards you. You're you're our portion. Lord, help us to be people who are in real relationship with you. We draw our resource and strength. Help us, Lord, to be ones who meet with you in the morning. Ones who meet with you in the day and in the night. And help our families and children and grandchildren and friends know you by pointing them to Jesus. I just pray, Lord, that you'd give each one of us the resource and strength to let you reign in your sovereignty over our lives. And although, Lord, we have scars and hurts and struggles and real pain in our lives, that we wouldn't get stuck there. And there'd be real freedom and strength, even in the middle of very difficult circumstances. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.